Hello, and welcome. I'm Mark Winkworth, and you're listening to Tales of the Sea. This series is my chance to share some of my favorite stories, poetry, and true life adventures inspired by the sea. Along the way, we'll hear about and on occasion meet with some of the talented and courageous individuals who brought these tales and adventures to life. I grew up boating on the lakes in Michigan and learned to sail in the waters of Long Island Sound in New York State. I can honestly say being on the water is truly my happy place. That's why it's my pleasure to share and celebrate some of my favorite tales of the sea with you. My guest today is Zeke Holland, a fellow State of Maine resident and fellow sailor, although Zeke's adventures far surpass my own. Zeke is the author of A Satisfying Sail Around the World, Says one reviewer, the book captures the joys and challenges of world cruising and brings an eventful circumnavigation to a well-deserved and happy ending around the world. It's a big goal for a sailor. But Zeke's journey followed what is euphemistically known as the milkman's route. Sailing from Florida through the Panama Canal and on into the South Pacific and Southeast Asia, passing the southern tip of Africa and returning to the Caribbean. A journey of thousands of nautical miles, taking the better part of two and a half years to complete. Like I said, a big goal for any sailor. I was curious to know how Zeke's love affair with the sea began. Well, I'm going to tell you a little story that kind of ends in the opposite of that, which is um, I always summered on the coast of Maine, and we'd see the boats sailing off you know, on the horizon come out, coming out of Booth Bay Harbor. My brother bought a tiny catamaran, a 12-foot aqua cat, and he invited me to come along one day, and this is one of my first times ever on the water, and it was windy, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I'm just hanging on to this rope that he gave me, which was the main sheet, and at some point, the spray started flying, and, and he said something about ease the main sheet, and I had no idea what he was talking about. I was just holding on for dear life, and the next thing we know, we were over, and I got caught on the canvas deck of the boat, and with my added weight on there, we actually pulled me underwater, and I thought that was it. We were three miles offshore, and it was afternoon, and I'm figuring some lobsterman's going to pick us up the following morning, pick our bodies up the following morning. Um, but my brother, was he, he, he knew what he was doing. He's six years old. He was 16. I was 10, I think. And uh, we got the boat upright, and we managed to sail in. I don't think I'd ever been so cold in my life. And I basically swore off sailing. I never wanted to go sailing again. Thank you very much. <laughs> I remember the first time I capsized in a small boat. I was scared to death, but almost immediately I wanted to do it again. So what got you reengaged? Somehow I ended up in the Sea Scouts kind of by accident. And uh, that, that brought me back. And uh, it, the Sea Scouts were a wonderful, wonderful experience. For those of you who may not be familiar, the Sea Scouts is an educational program for kids. It's year-round, teaches maritime safety, navigation, and technical skills. Kids can work their way up to the title of quartermaster, which is equivalent to being an Eagle Scout. It's a thorough training ground, so it's clear Zeke hadn't put sailing completely behind him. 
I wanted to know when he began to think about offshore sailing, sailing out beyond the sight of land. When I was in college, uh, I started looking for opportunities to crew offshore. And by chance, I found a guy who had built his own ferro-cement boat, and he was he was looking for crew to sail from Shelburne, Nova Scotia to somewhere in Ireland. And uh, long story short, I, I ended up on that crew. So that was my first really offshore experience and I liked it and I wanted to do my own. I didn't want to crew after that. I wanted to be the skipper. And it was probably 10 years later when I actually made that work. My wife and I spent a year doing an Atlantic circle um, from New England, you know, over and back, a bunch of time in the Caribbean. And then it was time, as I recall, for an Atlantic crossing. Um, how was that trip for your wife? She did do the crossing coming back east to west in the trade winds. I painted this romantic image of what it would be like in the trade winds, and she was going to love it. She didn't. <laughs> but she did her Atlantic crossing and then said, thank you very much. Been there, done that, no more. So you lost your first mate, and the next thing you know, you're contemplating a sail around the world. It's kind of funny that, um, at least the way I remember it, I was reading Cruising World, sitting in bed. My wife was reading a book, and I just muttered something about when I sail around the world. And I swear she said, you're not going to sail around the world. You're getting too old for that. Now, she swears she didn't say that, but I have a pretty distinct memory of that. And, um, you know, I kind of realized that if I'm going to do it, I got to do it now. And uh, and that really lit the fire and, and got me going. So I thank my wife for that as well. One of my favorite parts of Zeke's book is the way he went about putting together his crew for this round-the-world 30-month voyage. It was unconventional, to say the least. He basically found his crew and future partners on the venture on the Internet. I was curious to hear what his family and friends thought of his recruiting methods. Well, the most common reaction was, you're going to get on a boat and go around the world with a couple of guys you don't know that you met on the internet. But I would respond and say, you think it's better to do a crazy thing like this with family or friends, you know? And and they go, yeah, well, I take your point, and I'm glad you're doing this, not me. <laughs> so was there ever a point where your wife, Hallie, said, uh Wait a minute, Zeke, uh, you're doing what? My wife was always very supportive of uh, my doing this. And so the deal was that she would meet me in various places along the way and uh, that we wouldn't be apart for more than three or four months at a time. I think my son thought it was cool. You know, hey, my dad's sailing around the world. <laughs> What's your dad doing? <laughs> <laughs> Cool dad, yeah. <laughs> so once I had that fire lit, like I better do it now because I might be getting too old. And lo and behold, uh, I found a post, I think on Cruisers Forum, posted by one of the guys who ended up being a partner. 
saying he was looking for a partner to buy a Chris White Atlantic 42 for cruising the coast of Maine. Well, that was good timing. And then? So we had a nice chat and agreed that we liked similar boats and we liked sailing in similar places. And then he got back to me, I don't know, two, three, four weeks later and said, you know, another guy contacted me as a result of that post. He's He just bought a Chris White Atlantic 42 catamaran and now he's feeling like maybe he bit off a little more than he can chew and he's looking for a partner and he wants to sail around the world in some rally. Okay, so a rally on the high seas. Tell me how that works. The idea of the rally is a bunch of people agree to basically follow the same route and the same time frame and rendezvous at various places along the way. Uh, you get a certain amount of support from the rally organizer, which was Jimmy Cornell in this case. Uh, and I certainly knew of Jimmy Cornell and you know respected his ideas about when you should sail where, et cetera. Just a note to clarify here, Jimmy Cornell... Uh, British yachtsman, best-selling author, was the chief organizer of the Blue Planet Odyssey Rally, a round-the-world sail to raise awareness of climate change and the urgent issues facing the oceans. Cornell's plan was to visit some of the most endangered places on the planet, including the San Blas Islands off Panama, the Galapagos Islands of South America, and the island nation of Tuvalu in the South Pacific, as well as the Great Barrier Reef in Australia. Well, Jimmy Cornell had a a vision, and I think that uh, he kind of saw this as a culmination of his decades of sailing, that he would put together a round-the-world rally where we would visit a number of the places that are most affected by climate change. And we'd do what we could, which was, for the most part, calling attention to these places uh, he encouraged everybody to keep a blog and, and try to spread the word as much as you could. And he encouraged everyone to connect with some school kids. You know, go to your local elementary school or middle school and uh, make a connection somehow with the, the kids there and stay in touch with them and let them sort of be a part of the experience. So, Zeke, let's get back to the story of three relative strangers preparing to set sail around the world. What was the next step? So the three of us formed an LLC, jointly owned the boat, uh, equal owners, equal planners, three captains, which, of course, violates everybody's rules. Basically, we operated pretty much by consensus, and it was never really a problem. The boats that were to participate in the rally met in Key West, Florida, to begin what would be the start of the Blue Planet Odyssey adventure. I was interested to hear what the final preparations for a voyage of this magnitude entailed. Zeke confided that with only a few days left before the rally was to depart, things were not going as they might have hoped. Key West strikes me kind of like a one-way dead-end street. You know, it's the end of the road. There's a lot of very sad-looking boats there that are clearly never going to get out. And so when we had some serious engine problems and we ended up actually replacing an engine a few days before we were supposed to take off, I just felt like 
we have to get out of here and I'm not sure we're going to. And we were left behind. And then it was five or six days later that we were ready to go uh, with our new engine. We took it out for a, a sea trial, so to speak, where the idea was, if it works, we're going to keep going. And if it doesn't, we're going to come back. Well, so many people had met us and knew that we were trying to get out of there and trying to catch up with the other boats and whatnot. When we left, everyone's blowing conch shells and waving and everything. And we kind of turned to each other and said, you know, we, we can't go back. And fortunately, you didn't have to. So they are on the first leg, uh, Key West toward the Panama Canal. I can't help but wonder three relative strangers in close quarters, a 42-foot boat. It's not exactly palatial. How did it go? You know, we didn't have a hard time being together while we were at sea. You know, we're rotating through watches. We do four-hour watches each through the night. Uh, if the weather was good, you'd on for four and off for eight, so you get some sleep. So we did pretty well when we were at sea. If we anchored somewhere and had a few days to just kind of hang out and maybe go exploring and whatnot, we got on each other's nerves. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think about it, it's, uh, it's really interesting. If you think about the time that you're on watch, whether it's daytime uh, or in the middle of the night, those are your times. I mean, you're alone where it's just you and the ocean. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And to, to me, the the night watches were, for the most part, the highlight, heavenly, uh, literally heavenly. To, you know, go out in the incredible darkness and see more stars than you can believe, and and uh, or in the moonlight, see the the waves moving under the moonlight, and uh, uh, I I love that. I, I still love that. That That's kind of what makes it worthwhile is those moments that just kind of fill me with some sort of psychic energy, and keep me going until the next time. So for the most part, the trip was without serious incident, but you did encounter one particular unexpected moment. Uh, can you tell us about that and where in the world that took place? You know, one thing I've always said is if you're on watch alone in the middle of the night and something spooks you, you're not going to recover. You cannot recover on your watch. It's, you just don't have the the place to get sane again. So this was in Indonesia. In Indonesia, commonly boats, at least the fishing boats, um, don't use standard running lights. What they often do is is have a, a strobe light, maybe a red strobe light, and that's it. And there's also in the area where we were uh, fishing platforms that are kind of like houses on stilts with huge booms with fish nets and whatnot. And so if they're fishing, those are all lit up. They, they light up the sky crazy. But sometimes there's nobody there and they're completely dark. So on this particular watch, and it was after I'd been out long enough to, you know, be kind of tired and whatnot, I see a red flashing strobe light 
and it's right where one of these fishing platforms should be. And I'm looking on the radar and I, I think I see it. And, uh, but it seems like uh, it, it, we're not sailing past it. It's, you know, seems to be converging with us. So I think, well, there must be a lot of current here. So I'll head up 10 degrees to account for the current. And I think I'm okay. And then a few minutes later, it's like, well, it's it's still converging. This, this, and and that, that's where I kind of lost it. It's like, it doesn't compute. And so my brain is just spinning in circles. So I kept changing course a little more and it still seemed to be converging. And, you know, it couldn't be current. It's too much to be current. What the hell's going on? It wasn't until this light was quite close that I realized, in fact, it was a large fishing boat, probably, I don't know, 90 footer or so, completely black, not a single light on the boat, except for this one flashing red strobe light. And, uh, and it was trying to cross my bow, except I kept hitting up and converging with it, thinking I was getting out of the way. And uh, so, you know, realized it, kind of at the last moment bore off again and it went by 50 yards away maybe something like that in the blackness all black disappeared in the blackness again and uh well my heart was pounding for a while <laughs> oh, i would think so wow uh but as you continued on what what were some of the unexpected experiences and opportunities on the trip the, the organizers of the Blue Planet Odyssey created these opportunities to go to cultural events, to go to schools and talk to the local kids about climate change or let them ask us questions about what we were doing, um, to see uh, dancing and singing and whatnot that we just would not, I, I never would have encountered if I'd just gone on my own. Were there any big aha moments for you personally? For me, there was a huge eye opener, which was, I, I kind of had it subconsciously maybe in my head that people who didn't have much were unhappy. And boy, did I see that that's not so. You know, we'd visit people who lived in huts with thatched roofs and Maybe the, a few of them would even have a tiny little solar panel hooked up to an old car battery, hooked up to a DVD player so they could watch a movie now and then. Um, but, uh, you know, that was it. They had a dugout canoe and they could go out and fish. Um, and they were welcoming into their homes. If anything, they seemed to be some of the happiest people that I've ever met. What an eye-opener for me. It was a great experience. Zeke's book goes into colorful detail on some of his favorite spots. Uh, one stop in particular was the island nation of Tuvalu. Tuvalu is a country made up of nine small coral islands in the middle of the South Pacific. I was curious as to whether Zeke had any idea what to expect. I'd never heard of Tuvalu before I took off on this trip. Um, but it was one of the places that uh, Jimmy Cornell wanted the rally to go to. It's an independent country, 10,000 people, 6,000 people, I can't remember. Small island country that's 
on the front line of climate change. You may have heard of them in United Nations discussions and whatnot of climate change. Because they're an independent country, they get to speak, uh, speak up for themselves in those areas, as opposed to a lot of the islands that are, say, French protectorates, and France gets one voice. You know, these islands don't really get a full voice. It was just a, a real privilege to be there. We got to meet with the prime minister and have a chat with him about climate change. Got to speak with the prime minister's wife over drinks one evening. And she told me various stories about a storm that uh, inundated a lot of the islands, you know, breaking waves and that the salt killed the breadfruit trees. You know, bananas and some other trees survived, but the breadfruit trees all died from the salt. And so they were made, they had a project going on to replant breadfruit trees in raised beds to try to get them up higher. You know, it's something you could point to and say, wow, that's, that's climate change there. And as you say, one thing to read about it, but quite another to see it firsthand. Honestly, it left me sad. I get choked up right now just thinking about it. Here's people who have a beautiful life and are doing absolutely nothing to contribute to climate change. You know, they're not, they're burning a little bit of gasoline and an outboard motor, maybe. That's about it. But they are the ones who are going to get clobbered. You know, Tuvalu, there's a whole conversation about do you, try to build seawalls or do you plan to move everyone move everyone you know let give up on the country of tuvalu i think it's fiji has has offered uh, an area on one of their islands for climate refugees from tuvalu but of course the tuvaluans don't want to leave their homes and i totally get that i it, I think when I first got there, I thought, well, maybe they should move, you know, I mean, building seawalls is only going to work for just so long. And then after being there and meeting the people and seeing their homes and seeing the dancing, which is, they put on the most beautiful cultural experiences. And you realize, you know, if they move, that heritage, that culture is, is going to go. They're not going to be able to keep it going in some somebody else's land, you know? I hear the story and I can't help but think, what can any of us do? Well, I have to believe that it's worthwhile to do the things that we can, you know, to live with one car instead of two, or, you know, care about your gas mileage, you know, don't fly frivolously, all, all those kinds of things. I, I have to believe they make a difference. And at the same time, we have to take governmental action. A whole bunch of well-meaning individuals will help, but it won't help enough. You know, we really have to regulate things or, you know, do a carbon tax or, yeah, I don't know what the answer is, but you got to do something. You can't just keep going the way we're going. Well, we can, but the consequences are going to be devastating for a lot of people in the world. Zeke, you've been wonderfully generous of your time, and I know sailors and readers of great stories of adventure will love your book, as I did. 
What would you say to anyone listening who has ever contemplated an adventure like yours? I would just say that it was really a great thing to do. And I encourage other people, you know, if you're into sailing, you don't have to have the perfect boat. You know, you got to have a seaworthy boat. But if, if you know that you're safe, do it. Just go. And I don't mean you have to sail around the world, but whatever the thing is for you, whether it's going to the Caribbean or going across the Atlantic or going around the world, you know, going around the world, people think, well, that's such a big, big thing. Well, you know, it's just one day of cruising after the next day of cruising. And they just all string together. And sure, you, you know, we went 20 days going from the Galapagos to the Marquesas. And for a lot of people, the idea of 20 days sailing day and night, maybe that's too much. To me, it was delightful. And I'd love to do that part again. But, you know, whatever it is that, uh, that you think maybe you could do, if only, I say go for it. Good advice. Zeke, thank you so much for sharing your adventure. And thanks for writing A Satisfying Sail Around the World. The book is available on Amazon. Also, as a companion to the book, be sure to visit SatisfyingSail.com to view all of the wonderful photography from the trip. Zeke, been great talking to you. All right. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. That ends this episode of Tales of the Sea. This is your host, Mark Winkworth. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends. And thanks for listening.